As he wrote in the wake of the collapse of the western part of the Roman Empire in the mid-5th century, a pastor named Salvian, sometimes called Salvianus from Marseille in what we would know as southern France today or what would have been Gaul back in the day, he wrote a, a work called On the Government of God. Basically, talking about how God is still sovereign, even in the midst of the fall of the Roman Empire. I think we could say that he was arguing particularly that God is sovereign in the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And what he did in the work is that he attributed the downfall of the Roman Empire to the wickedness of professing Christians. He attributed the downfall of the civilization in which he lived to the wickedness of those who professed to be believers in Christ And he actually said that they were worse than the external nations, the barbarians, as they call them, who were attacking the Roman Empire. He described the the wickedness of the immorality and the theft that took place among them. He described the severe oppression of the poor, and he said this. He said, what an intolerable and monstrous thing it is, one that human hearts can hardly endure, that one can hardly bear to hear spoken of, that many of the wretched poor despoiled of their tiny holdings after they have completely lost their property, must still pay taxes for what they have lost. Though possession has been forfeited, the assessment is not canceled. They are without property but are overwhelmed with taxes. Who can fairly estimate this evil? The poor wretches pay taxes for the invaders who have swooped down on their estates. After the father's death, the sons have no claims on the little farms that should rightly be theirs, but are forced to pay ruinous taxes for them. As a result, what else is accomplished by this great wrongdoing except that men are stripped naked by private robbery, die under the public exactions, and taxations ends the lives of those whose property has been carried off by plunderers. It's not a pretty picture that he paints of the society in which he lives. Elsewhere he said, If my frail humanity permitted... I should wish to shout beyond my strength and to make my voice ring throughout the whole world. Be ashamed, ye Romans, people everywhere. Be ashamed of the lives you lead. No cities are free of evil haunts, and no cities anywhere are free from indecency, except those in which the barbarians have begun to live. Do we then wonder if we who are wretched are so impure that we are conquered by the enemy who are outdone by them in honor and possess our properties who abjure our wickedness. It is neither their natural strength that makes them conquer, nor the weakness of our nature that makes us subject to defeat. Let no one think or persuade himself otherwise. It is our vicious lives alone that have conquered us. Savianus's critique of the church in his day, and the way that he connected it to the downfall of the Roman Empire sounds a lot like what we have been seeing and hearing in the book of Amos and what we will continue to see in the book of Amos. Loving evil and hating good, oppressing the poor and living wickedly, even combined with external religious observations, observances, will not deliver from the judgment of God. This is, this is hypocrisy and this is wickedness. And we see more of this in Amos chapter 5. So I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Amos chapter 5 as we consider this text of Scripture this morning. Amos writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. She has fallen. She will not rise again. 
the virgin Israel. She lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live, but do not resort to Bethel, and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth, he who made Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas, and in all the streets they say, Alas, alas, they also call, to the, call the farmer to mourning, and the professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the vineyards there is wailing, because I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion... And a bear meets him, or goes home and leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sikuth, your king, and Kiun, your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now here in Amos chapter 5, Amos shows the people the dire straits in which they find themselves. Judgment has been announced. Judgment was on its way. But nevertheless, 
in the kindness of God, there was still a way of return open for all who would take it. And so as we look to the chapter this morning, we'll see two main themes. And those two themes are are actually mixed throughout the chapter. Theme number one is the depth of apostasy and its result. And theme number two is the call to return and the corresponding requirement. So we have apostasy and its result, and then we have the call to return and the corresponding requirement. We'll spend most of our time talking about the depth of apostasy and its result, but then at the end we'll come around uh, to the call to return and the corresponding requirement. Since chapter 2, verse 6, Amos has been confronting Israel with their apostasy. And apostasy simply means they're, they're falling away from the Lord. Amos confronted them with their sin of falling away from the Lord, told them that judgment was on its way as a result. And chapter 5 is, is no different in that respect. Chapter 5 opens with this dirge concerning the results of this apostasy. This dirge is taken up, Israel will fall and will not rise again. And indeed, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom never were constituted into their own nation again once they were carried away into exile. The judgment of God was coming upon them in such a way that there would be 90% casualties, as we find there in verse 3. The city which goes forth, a thousand strong, will only have a hundred left. The village or town which goes forth, a hundred strong, will only have ten left. 90% casualty rate is pretty rough. Though the outward prospects of the northern kingdom looked actually pretty good, During the time when Amos spoke, during the reign of Jeroboam II, nevertheless, in the days after the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel would collapse within the span of a few decades. In short, of the next six kings of Israel, between Jeroboam II and the fall of the kingdom to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., there were six kings, four of them were murdered, and fifth one was the king when the kingdom fell to the Assyrians. What this means is that the stability and prosperity quickly fell apart, quickly came unraveled after the days of Amos's ministry. And then the kingdom fell to outsiders. And so you have internal chaos, you have external invaders, and this is all the judgment of God for their apostasy. During the days of Amos, Amos was still holding out the hope, still holding out the way of return for any who would come to the Lord in repentance and faith. And so, in light of the judgment which was announced, the Lord sends forth that invitation there in verse 4. Seek me that you may live. And then in verse 5, he contrasts this with what they must not do. But do not resort to Bethel, and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble. And so, the worship and manner of seeking the Lord at these places, Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba, was revolting to the Lord. And he commands them not to go there, but rather to seek Him, to seek the Lord Himself. And again, this command is repeated in the first part of verse 6. Seek the Lord that you may live. And one of the ways that I think is instructive to consider the depths of the wickedness that the people had fallen into is to consider those places that are mentioned there in verse 5, Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. Those are places that here the Lord commands them not to go. But those places historically had been places where the Lord had done good 
to his people in the times past. But the wickedness of the people has changed those places of blessing into places of idolatry and worthless worship. So Bethel was the place at which Jacob appeared to God as Jacob was sent away from his father and mother to take a wife from his mother's brother Laban and God appeared to him at Bethel and promised to give the land to him and to his descendants and promised him that in him and his descendants all the families of the earth would be blessed. Kind of a restatement of the Lord's promise to Abraham. And he promised Jacob that he would be with him. As one writer helpfully put it, Jacob arrived as a man with a past and left as a man with a future. Bethel was the place at which God appeared to Jacob and gave him great promises. But Bethel had been changed by Jeroboam I at the beginning of the division of the two kingdoms. Jeroboam I, of course, was the king who set up the calves in Bethel and Dan. And so now the people of Israel were attempting to worship the uncreated and invisible God by means of a golden calf, which God had explicitly commanded them not to do. Beersheba, likewise, was a place of blessing. It was the place at which Abraham was told by King Abimelech, Genesis 21, 22, God is with you in all that you do. It was the place at which the Lord appeared to Isaac in Genesis 26, 23 and 24. And he said to him, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. It was the place at which God had spoken to Jacob in the visions of the night. In Genesis 46, as Jacob was getting ready to go down to Egypt to see Joseph, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Beersheba was a place at which God had appeared and spoken to the patriarchs, He promised blessings and had manifested his presence there with them. And we don't know much about what the illicit activity was that was going on, the false worship that was taking place at Beersheba. But we see this warning from Amos that they were not to go there. There's bad stuff going down in Beersheba. You stay away from there. Similarly, Gilgal had degenerated from what it once symbolized in the life of Israel. Gilgal was the place at which Israel had camped after they crossed the Jordan into the promised land under the lead of Joshua. Gilgal was where they had set up those 12 stones taken up out of the Jordan River, those 12 stones that were to be a memorial, such that when the children asked their fathers what the stones meant, the fathers were to reply, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. Gilgal was also where the Israelites who were born in the wilderness were circumcised in Joshua chapter 5. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Good stuff happened to Gilgal. But now the times have changed. Gilgal was one of the places of ungodly worship. We saw that last week in chapter 4, verse 4. We see it here in verse 5. We see the punishment that is coming. Gilgal will certainly go into captivity. The people of Israel had fallen, and their fall had been great. They changed these places where they received promises and blessings from the Lord into places where they actively pursued wickedness. Part of that wickedness was done by means of idolatry, and part of that wickedness was done by means of oppression and injustice. Amos brings this up quite frequently, as we've seen in this book, and we see it here again. So look with me to verses 10 through 12. Amos says there, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. 
Therefore, because you impose a heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Now apparently, at this time, there were some in society who were still willing to speak the truth. There were some who were willing to, in the words of verse 10, reprove in the gate. They were willing to to speak up, say what's going down is not right. Some people would still speak with integrity. They were the outcasts. They were hated and abhorred by their society. And one of the problems that Salvian encountered in his day in 5th century Gaul was that some people would, would make an oath in Christ's name that they would do something sinful. They would promise in Christ's name that they were going to do something sinful and then they would feel bound to necessarily carry out what it was they had sworn to do. He said, Then many swear by the name of Christ to do things not merely trivial and foolish but even criminal. For this is their usual manner of speaking. By Christ I'll steal that. By Christ I'll wound that man. By Christ I'll murder him. It has come to such a pass that they feel bound by religion to commit the crimes they have sworn in Christ's name. And Salvian told of an occasion where he had personally interceded for a poor man whose property was about to be swallowed up. And the man who was about to to do the wrong responded by saying, I have made a vow to seize this man's property. And he said, shouldn't I just go ahead and do it? And Salvian said, then I left him, having heard the reason for his most pious crime. But what else was I to do when his action was shown to be so just and sacred? Isn't that somewhat parallel to what was going on here in the book of Amos, where you have these these poor people who are being oppressed, and yet the society as a whole, as we find later on in the chapter, were still offering up sacrifices to God. Verse 22, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. According to verse 13, this state of affairs led the prudent people to keep their mouths shut. As Calvin put it, they would then be forced to be silent, for they could affect nothing by speaking. Nay, they would have no freedom of speech allowed to them. And though they attempted to discharge their office, yet tyrannical violence would instantly impose silence on them. When they found out how badly things were going to go if they actually stood up and spoke the truth and stood up for what was right, stood up against what was going wrong in their society. When they saw what would come up against them, they decided to keep their heads down, keep their mouths shut. And we all know, to some extent, how that works. Our brother Terry has a line where he says, no good deed goes unpunished. That's the way it, that's the way it happens in a very wicked society. No good deed goes unpunished. And when you get so far down the line that that begins to happen, the godly people keep their mouths shut, the situation only compounds itself. The situation only gets worse and worse. Because now you've entered into an arena where the only people who recognize the danger and the wickedness of the situation and recognize that the brakes need to be applied are no longer willing to put on the brakes or even to speak up and tell someone else, hey, you need to put on the brakes. In such circumstances, things will will only get worse. The oppression of the poor that we find in verse 11 will not stop. The injustices and judgment alluded to in verse 12 will only keep on going. And this is what brings judgment. 
This was the behavior that would bring about the, the lamentation and the wailing in the plazas and the streets and the vineyards that we find in verses 16 and 17. This was the behavior that would bring about the reversal of their expectations of the day of the Lord, as we find in verse 18. They had expected that the day of the Lord was going to be some kind of great blessing to them. Now, we don't know what all factored into their expectations and what it was exactly that they were planning uh, that would happen to them on the day, the day of the Lord. But evidently, they thought it was going to be good. Evidently, as indicated in verse 20, they thought that it was going to be a day of light and not of darkness. They seemed to think that the Lord was going to show up and that there would be some great blessing that came to them. They had it all wrong. It was not going to be a good day, but a bad day. Not a day of light, but a day of darkness. And then we find in verse 19, what it would be like for them. It would be like a man who flees from a lion only to meet a bear, or like a man who returns home, leans up against the wall, you know, kind of shuts the door, glad I made it in from out there, and then a snake bites him. The day of the Lord would be that kind of a day for them. They could run, but they could not hide. They could run, but they would just die tired. This day of the Lord, this judgment that was coming on them, was brought on by their own wickedness. They were greedy, oppressive, and wicked, and not even, as we've seen, their attempts to worship the Lord were acceptable to the Lord. And we find that in verses 21 through 23, that the Lord rejected their, their festivals, did not delight in their solemn assemblies, rejected their offerings, didn't want to hear their songs. Now, given their wickedness and their persistence in it, the Lord's not interested in this external worship. He required them to act toward each other with justice and righteousness. And so the Lord says in verse 24, which may be the most famous verse in the entire book of Amos, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The Lord required faithfulness, practical faithfulness, demonstrated in the way that people treated one another. All of their worship and all of their sacrifices were empty and hollow when not accompanied by holy and godly living and godliness in interpersonal relationships and interpersonal interactions. And then in these, these closing verses of the chapter, verses 25 through 27, Amos turns back the clock, as it were, and looks back to the past of Israel. He asks, the, the, the Lord asks if they presented him with sacrifices in the wilderness. And on the one hand, certainly there, there were sacrifices that were offered to the Lord. But on the other hand, there were also sacrifices that were not offered to the Lord. Just think, think back to the golden calf. Think back to the episode in Numbers 25 at, at Baal Peor, where Israel joined with the daughters of Moab in the worship of Baal and engaged in immorality. There was open wickedness there. And it seems that, that what Amos is alluding to there in verse 26 is that there was also probably some secret idolatry that was, that was going on among the Israelites during the wilderness year. It seems that the Lord is here showing the, the wickedness of Israel back in the day in the wilderness and uh, is making a comparison between that and the behavior of the people in Amos' day. The flow of argument from verse 21 down through verse 26 seems to be that the worship in the wilderness was itself a mixed bag. And their worship now 
is a mixed bag. They do offer sacrifices to God, as indicated in verse 22, but those sacrifices are unacceptable because they worship idols and refuse to reform their lives according to the word of God. The result of the wickedness, as seen in verse 27, is exile. In short, we see apostasy, and we see the result of apostasy. Apostasy takes on many different faces. Sometimes the face is that of idolatry. Sometimes the face of apostasy is injustice and the ill treatment of others. Sometimes apostasy shows itself in outwardly worshiping God, at least in appearance, according to prescribed forms. But if this chapter is clear about anything, it is clear that such worship is completely unacceptable to the Lord when it is mingled with idolatry and because the would-be worshipers have hearts that are far from the Lord. And that the evidence of hearts that are far from the Lord is seen in the way that they treat one another. And, of course, the kind of sinfulness that Amos described here was not unique to his day and age. Again, verse 25 seems to link this wickedness back with what was taking place in the days of Moses. Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, which we read together earlier as well, makes this this link back to the wilderness generation. Salvian in the 5th century saw this among professing Christians in the Roman Empire, and does it not still exist today? Are there not people who may make an outward attempt to worship God while at the same time they mix and mingle other ungodly and unbiblical religious practices and superstitions in their lives that are contrary to the word of God? Are there not people who claim the name of Christ and yet engage in superstitious practices rather than simply trusting in Christ and trusting the providence of God in their lives? Are there not people who claim the name of Christ who simultaneously, as we find here in verse 12, distress the righteous, accept bribes, and deny justice to the weakest and most vulnerable in society? Certainly there are such people. Certainly there have been in the past. There's nothing new in the day of Amos, and it has happened throughout the ages. It's happening even now. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And as he said in Ecclesiastes 5.8, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another, and there are higher officials over them. Wickedness even among those who claim to follow the Lord, should not surprise us. As my father would say, how long have you been living in the world? Right? We, we should just wake up and, and see it. Yeah, bad things happen, even among those who profess to follow Christ. Please understand, however, that though we should not be surprised by this kind of wickedness, it is not for that reason excusable. Not in the least. The Lord certainly doesn't excuse it. And this should underscore how terrible it is. It brings the judgment of God. It's not without cause that verse 9 tells us that the Lord flashes forth with destruction upon the strong and destruction comes upon the fortresses. It is not without cause that for people who live in this way, the day of the Lord is a day when people might try to run and hide but find that all is in vain. The day of the Lord came for them when the kingdom fell to the Assyrians, 722 B.C., and there's another day of the Lord that is coming at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the result will be that all will be judged, all who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness, as we find in 2 Thessalonians 2.12. And so, my friend, 
I can't see into your heart. I don't know how you treat all of the other people that you interact with, whether you treat them with justice or with injustice, whether you are fair or not, whether you do things that distress the righteous or not, whether you mingle the worship of God with practices of idolatry and superstition, be it the idolatry of greed or any other kind. But please be advised, on the basis of Amos chapter 5, that God will not be mocked. Every man, every woman will reap what they sow. As Paul says in Galatians 6, he who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And this brings us then to that, that second theme, the call to respond and the corresponding requirement. Because this chapter not only talks about sowing to the flesh and condemns it, it also tells us how to sow to the Spirit. There is a lot of talk of judgment in this chapter, a lot of places where wickedness is called out, but notice how the calls to return to the Lord and how the corresponding requirements are also scattered throughout this chapter as well. We see it in verse 4. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. We see it in verse 6. Seek the Lord that you may live. We see it in verses 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gates. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And then in verse 24, we see the, uh, that that return to the Lord is a, uh, is a call to, to live lives that are characterized by godly conduct in our relationships. In other words, don't just show up for a worship service and suppose that you're acceptable to the Lord, but rather let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Deal with one another in righteousness and faithfulness. The message of Amos is clear. If you would avoid the judgment that is coming, then seek the Lord. Seeking the Lord encompasses not only external religious actions, worship, prayer, hearing the Word of God, reading the Word of God, and so on. Seeking the Lord also encompasses how you live in society, how you treat others. Part of seeking the Lord is seeking good. Seeking good means obeying the Lord yourself, obeying Him yourself, instead of seeking after evil. It means seeking good for others. Not giving way to unjust weights and measures, so to speak. Not giving way to bribes. Not depriving the poor of what is rightly due to them. Now, certainly it was no crime that there were poor people in society. The crime, though, was that the rich and powerful took advantage of them and deprived them of the justice that was due to them and deprived them of the recourse that they had to justice in the courts. As verse 12 puts it, they turned aside the poor in the gate. The city gate would have been the place where court cases were handled by the elders of the city. But these people were turning aside the poor. They weren't giving them a chance to get a fair hearing, a fair hearing in court, so to speak. And so what verse 24 is calling for is not a leveling of society such that there would no longer be any poor or any rich or something along that line. What verse 24 is calling for is a rendering of true justice, which is neither partial to the poor nor deferential to the rich. Verse 24 is calling for righteous dealings in society, fairness. And thus it was that the way forward for the people in the time of Amos is the way forward for people today as well. It is the way forward for those who are in the church who have stumbled into sin, and is the way forward for those who are outside who have never known Christ and never so much as made a pretense of worshiping Him. 
Our gospel, thanks be to God, is a message of reconciliation. It is the message that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Because we had failed to seek after God, God sent his only begotten son into the world to seek after us. Son of man came to seek and to save what was lost, as Jesus says in Luke 19.10. Though we deserve condemnation and judgment, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3.17. And this, of course, was accomplished on the cross where Christ died for our sins. This was accomplished by Christ's resurrection, which he was raised from the grave three days later. Christ paid the debt that we owed, suffered the judgment and the wrath that we deserved, and this is the gospel by which all who believe in Christ are saved, and this is the message that we hold out to the world. As believers in Christ, we are ambassadors for him. The message of Amos 5 must also be the message that we hold out to those who are on the road to judgment. The message is simple. Seek the Lord that you might live. Our Lord Jesus Christ has come that we might have life and might have it to the full. Our message is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our message is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we understand then that in seeking the Lord, we must seek good. The two must go together. We understand, as we heard from John the Baptist earlier in Luke chapter 3, that we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance to all. Our message is that the Lord God of hosts has been gracious to us in the sending of his Son. Though we have lived in unrighteousness and injustice, though we have taken advantage of others and trampled on them in various ways, perhaps deprived them of justice, nevertheless, God still provides a way of escape, the way of escape from his wrath. And that way of escape is to seek the Lord, to confess our sins, to seek forgiveness through faith in Christ, and to turn away from our wickedness, to seek good and not evil. Our message, in short, is repent and believe in Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want you to take this to heart, that apart from Christ, you're on the road to judgment. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can talk to me or you can talk to another Christian whom you know who is here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to trust in Christ. And if you're here this morning as a believer, and you're walking with the Lord, allow this passage to remind you of where you would be, but for the grace of God. Allow this passage to remind you again of the amazing grace of God towards sinners. These people were wicked and horrible, yet God calls out to them, Seek the Lord that you may live. This testifies to us of the amazing grace of God, the kindness and love of our Heavenly Father. He has given such good news to such wicked people. And so all praise be to our great God who is gracious to us in Christ. May he grant us all true faith and true repentance. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your gracious kindness that you still reach out to hard-hearted and warped sinners. You have reached out in mercy to us, who but for your grace would be no different than them. Father, we thank you for your mercies and kindness, and we ask, Lord, that you would grant us all true repentance. Let us turn from our sin. Let us walk with you in holiness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.